Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Today we're excited to introduce a special three-part series powered by the Indo-Pacific Futures Project underway at the college. This project, which explores the future strategic landscape of the Indo-Pacific region, offers a range of analysis centred around three key elements of regional security. The future of the regional order, the influence of critical technology, and the rise of geoeconomics. All of this analysis will be made available on the College's Futures Hub website. There's a link in the show notes. This special three-part podcast series explores each of those three elements of regional security. In this program, we're focusing on the future of the regional order in the Indo-Pacific. Here's Chris Farnham to take you on that journey. It's no longer up for discussion whether the Indo-Pacific region is in the grip of great power competition between the United States of America and the People's Republic of China. And when two great powers compete, the strategic landscape shifts in ways impossible to predict, making the job for those developing policy even more difficult. But predicting the future is a bit of a fool's errand. History is littered with big calls that never panned out. Instead, considering what is plausible and understanding where the bounds of plausibility rest provides us the opportunity to map out a number of scenarios that could easily resemble what the future holds for us. This allows us to develop policies and capabilities that can pivot without too much difficulty to suit whatever is lurking just below the horizon. Currently, when we survey the Indo-Pacific strategic landscape, two trends really stand out. One trend shows how states are using non-traditional strategies and tactics as an attempt to alter the regional order. The other shows how states are being more flexible and forging new blocks to defend that order. These two trends are going to intersect in ways that are difficult to imagine. But the challenge for policymakers is to understand it best as they can in order to develop policies suited to meet the challenges of coming decades. In future episodes of this series, we'll also explore the influence of critical technology and geoeconomics on regional security. But today, we're looking at the future of the regional order in the Indo-Pacific. More specifically, we're going to be looking at the dual trends of grey zone and hybrid threats and the rise of minilateralism. Understanding the influence of these trends and how they might interact gives us an idea of how the future strategic landscape in the Indo-Pacific might look. We'll get to minilateralism later on in the show, but first, let's unpack what grey zone and hybrid threats are and how they're being used to reshape the regional order. 
Around the 2010s, some new terminology began rising to the surface in general discussions around global security. Commentators and analysts started talking about grey zone tactics and hybrid threats. Pretty esoteric stuff to anyone who's not deeply involved in the analysis of conflict itself. To better understand what grey zone and hybrid threats are, we spoke to a number of experts from the Indo-Pacific and the wider security community on how they understand these issues. After having these discussions, one thing was certainly clear. Not everyone sees grey zone and hybrid threats as different dynamics, and if they do, there's quite a lot of overlap as to how they fit together. This will be quite apparent as we listen into those discussions. So let's start by asking what we mean when we refer to grey zone tactics. Here's Abhijit Singh from the Observer Research Foundation with his take on it. Grey zone refers to a certain ambiguity that does not allow for a clear distinction between competence and non-competence. In fact, uh, I would go uh, further to say that it is a kind of operation that does not allow for a distinction between peace and war. Okay, so let's focus on that idea of a space between peace and war. Here's Elizabeth Braw from the American Enterprise Institute to elaborate on that for us. Grey zone aggression are the activities that take place in the grey zone between war and peace. So anything short of sustained use of force, which is the definition of an armed conflict, anything less than that, it's a vast, vast space where you can use lots of different forms of aggression without it being war. So if grey zone tactics are aggressions that are not peaceful but don't reach the level of outright conflict, what are hybrid threats and how do they differ? Here's Sasha Bachman from the University of Canberra and Stellenbosch University in South Africa with his take. Frank Hoffman wrote, Conflict in the 21st century, the rise of hybrid wars. He provides us with an early definition, and I would like to quickly cite him. Hybrid threats incorporate a full range of different modes of warfare, including conventional capabilities, irregular tactics and formations, terrorist acts including indiscriminate violence and coercion, and criminal disorder. Hybrid wars can be conducted by both states and a variety of non-state actors, with or without state sponsorship. These multimodal activities can be conducted by separate units or even by the same unit, but are generally operationally and tactically directed and coordinated within the main battle space to achieve synergistic effects in the physical and psychological dimension of conflict. So that's quite a lot to take on board in one hit. And instead of forcing you to listen back over it a couple of times, we spoke to Frank Hoffman from the National Defence University in the United States, and we asked him how he separates grey zone from hybrid war. I make a pretty large distinction between the two along a continuum of conflict in which grey zone activity is below the threshold of war. Uh, So it might be termed a form of conflict, but is not a form of war or warfare. It is synonymous with force without war, measure short of war, and competition short of armed conflict, where the adversary is trying to change conditions on the ground politically, economically, perhaps socially, uh, in a slow erosion of norms, legitimacy, and cohesion, uh, particularly in the Asia sense where you know China's activities are undermining norms, undermining trade and economic activity, 
like trying to gain in the information domain and particularly with the geoeconomic domain, uh, a significant change in the balance of power in Asia. And I think principally trying to erode the cohesion of the alliance architecture. If they can undermine America's credibility and its presence, uh, they can start the next real war uh, at a much stronger position. So it does have a you know, geopolitical advantage over time. So Frank's idea of gray zone is pretty clear and compares with what we've already covered. But what about hybrid threats? Hybrid warfare to me was an hypothesis about 15 years ago that General Mattis and I had been developing, you know, about where trend lines were going. And at that time, you know, the American unipolarity suggested that nation states were not going to contest in the post-91, post-95 world, even the post-2001 world, you know, American military superiority. So, you know, nation states were going to have to move into the middle into proxy wars. Irregular forces were going to get the diffusion of technology that came with globalization, and were going to become more lethal. Things that we had seen in the 77 to 82 time period when we had been helping the Afghans and Mujahideen to fight against the Russians. There was going to be this convergence in the middle that was going to have greater frequency, salience, and lethality than it had in the past. Then General Mattis, then Lieutenant General Mattis at Quantico, liked the word hybrid. We put that label on it at the time to capture this middle of the conflict spectrum that would be more lethal than the average irregular war of the flea of the past. Uh, it would be something new in the sense of it's not new because looking back at the Chechens or the Boers, you know, there have been non-state actors or irregular elements that have gotten Mausers or Krupp cannon and have confused British, Russian, or American forces. I didn't intend it to be something novel. I thought it always existed. General Mattis always insists that there's nothing new to learn if you study 5,000 years of history. So it seems that there's not a lot new here. Hybrid forms of war, which is the meshing of state and non-state actors in forms of conflict, and grey zone activities, which are aggressions that don't meet the standards of war or provoke an armed response from adversaries. These are tactics that have been around for quite a few years. Uh, as Mike Mazar, I think, put it uh, best in his wonderful monograph with the Army War College, you know, it's not novel. It's been going on since Thucydides and, and Athens and Sparta were contesting their alliances and their fiscal arrangements. But if, if you're familiar with most of what went on in the Cold War in the Eastern European states, in Poland, during the Reagan administration, we were involved in trying to build up the solidarity, like Valesis people. Uh, we provided money. Uh, intelligence activity on what the Russians were doing in Poland. Uh, we provided mimeograph machines. Uh, we tried to influence the newspapers, the unions, and the church. There was a measure short of war campaign uh, that was conducted by Americans. It was run by the intelligence community. It was not terribly sophisticated, but it was comprehensive. You know, nothing new at the lower end, uh, where attribution and deniability and covertness is desired. You know, major powers uh, understand the risks that are associated with escalation and a mistake. These tactics have been in use for many decades. The Iranian Revolutionary Guards, for instance, we know have used asymmetric warfare in the Persian Gulf uh, since the 1980s, at least. The Sri Lankan Tigers used these tactics way back in the 80s and the 90s. But even if we go back further, say, to the 17th century or the 18th century, uh, privateering was a way of raising revenue for war by mobilizing privately owned battleships to support state power. Uh, privateering uh, in the 17th and 18th century was uh, was actually officially sanctioned by the state through the issue of letters of the mark. 
Uh, and so in that sense, there was no plausible deniability. But the idea that non-state actors could be used to target another state's uh, merchantmen or military ships uh, does go back a long way, I would say. That was Arbhajit Singh, adding greater context to Frank Hoffman's Cold War examples. Sasha Buckman also cites the Cold War when considering historical examples of grey zone and hybrid threats, but he highlights one major difference where things have changed. When it comes to political warfare, which is in its sense actually the predecessor of the grey zone, we see, for example, the very successful American uh, counter-communist operations in Italy in the 1950s, from political assassinations to propaganda to stratcom, all that merged together. And the only thing what is different today is obviously the use of the fifth dimension. That means the internet, cyberspace as a battle domain, where we have complete new capabilities and operational abilities. So where and how are grey zone and hybrid operations in effect today and what do they look like in practice? Here's Elizabeth Braw with some interesting examples. There are lots of examples of grey zone activities from a range of different countries. For example, in my own home country of Sweden, uh, there have been a number of cutting-edge technology companies, especially in, um, in space research, that have been bought up by Chinese companies. And, and it turned out that uh, a couple of them are owned by the PLA. And the Swedish government, because it's not used to thinking of, of acquisitions as a national security activity, didn't realize that, that those takeovers might be a problem. And now those firms are gone with that cutting edge research. Then, of course, we have cyber, which is something that Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea engage in for different reasons. Uh, Russia does a lot of espionage and disruption. North Korea does cyber attacks in order to get money. Uh, Iran engages in, in espionage and disruption as well, and a little bit of getting money. And and uh, China uses uh, cyber cyber intrusion um, a lot to to steal intellectual property. The beauty of grey zone aggression is that you can keep innovating because there are so many ways in which you can hit uh, liberal democracies because there are so many. Uh, attack surfaces, you might call them, so many parts of society that you can hit. What we have seen is coercion of global companies by China. A particularly egregious case is the case of Ericsson. Sweden last year in 2020 decided to uh, not use Huawei or ZTE for its 5G. Now That was decided by uh, an independent government agency. That's how things are done in Sweden. And uh, China immediately started telling Ericsson to lobby the Swedish government to reverse that decision. And and Ericsson, what is Ericsson going to do? It has lots of business in China, uh, one-tenth of its revenue in China versus 1% in Sweden. So the CEO started giving interviews saying, uh, I think uh, Huawei should be admitted uh, to, to the 5G market in Sweden, and I think the government should reverse its decision. In 2007, Estonia was the victim of a major cyber attack that basically took the country offline for a number of days. It's quite often cited as an example of a grey zone attack. But Sasha Buckman believes that this is where the line between grey zone and hybrid gets blurry. We always use the 2007 Estonia example for cyber, but there was more to it. We always forget and overlook is that 20% of the population in Estonia are ethnic Russians. And you saw on the streets of Tallinn 
Russian mobs attacking people. And that is why, actually, for me, it is a hybrid war example. But there is one particular example of grey zone and hybrid war that stands out above others and that raised these non-traditional tactics into focus for the global audience. And that was the annexation of Crimea and areas of eastern Ukraine by Russian forces in 2014. As Sasha Buckman explains, these were well-trained, well-armed and well-organised men who acted identically to soldiers of the Russian Federation, but they displayed no markings tying them to the Russian state. Indeed, President Vladimir Putin has claimed that these forces were just people's self-defence units. When we saw the images uh, in March uh, 2014 from uh, Crimea, we saw these um, heavily armed, very professional-looking uh, soldiers wearing these green uh, battle frocks. Um, they were definitely uh, uh, highly uh, operational and highly skilled soldiers. You could see that in the way they basically um, conducted themselves. They had a, a, a strong special forces component to them, um, but they had no insignia. They had no uh, batches. The uh, military assets were all basically, there was no way that you can basically associate them with a particular unit, etc. But these soldiers, which have become widely known as Russia's little green men, weren't the only grey zone actors that caught the world's attention during the 2010s. China's maritime militias, or as Dr Andrew Erickson from the US Naval War College prefers to call them, China's little blue men, are the standard bearers for grey zone and hybrid tactics today, according to Abhijit Singh. The primary exponents of grey zone today are China's maritime militias. These are essentially fishermen uh, that are supported by the Chinese Coast Guard and paramilitary forces and that engage in assertive acts in the South China Sea. This is a way of enforcing China's territorial claims. Now, what these militias do is that they routinely deploy in the EEZs of uh, Southeast Asian states. And the tactic that they use is to have a presence that uh, shapes the dynamic of the region. It allows China to control the security dynamic of the South China Sea. Now, it's relevant to point out that China's maritime militias aren't, uh, you know, what some would describe as a ragtag assortment of irregulars. Uh, that's not what these militias are. These are professionals. They have been drafted in for a, for a certain purpose. They are well-trained and they act with clarity and precision to achieve what, what is clearly a strategic objective for China. In particular, if one looks at the ways in which the expertise with which these militias use ambiguity to limit counteraction by, uh, by opponents is quite revealing of the sophistication of China's gray zone attacks. It's not just China that has been using these irregular forces in the South China Sea. Other countries, such as Vietnam, too, have done it. And though I would qualify that by saying that it's on a much smaller scale and a much lower degree of sophistication than the Chinese. So based on the discussion so far, it's reasonable to assume that democracies are often the main target of grey zone actors and hybrid operations. We asked Elizabeth Braw if democracies are particularly vulnerable to these types of actors. Liberal democracies are open societies, so that means that basically anybody can visit our countries, anybody can do business with our countries, anybody can use our information, anybody can contact us, and that means that uh, there are a lot of surfaces that a hostile state and and its proxies, so uh, entities, organizations, individuals working for it, a lot of uh, uh, 
points where where those people can connect. And on top of that, we as liberal democracies don't think a lot about uh, um, about conflicts with other countries because we feel peaceful. So we are not really prepared for other countries acting in a hostile way against us. The armed forces are prepared, obviously, but the rest of society is not. So does that also mean that grey zone and hybrid tactics are well suited to and most used by authoritarian countries? So Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea are all countries that are trying to, to weaken the West in some way and, and strengthen their own position. And if you think of the traditional ways of doing so, that's um, fighting a war and then you emerge victorious and, and you have won and that, that sort of puts you ahead as, as, as um, a global leader. But these countries know that uh, in the long run, they would lose a war against the West. Yes, China would have uh, a good chance of, of uh, wreaking havoc on, on Western countries, but in the end, they together, NATO and its partners, would defeat China. So what do you do if, if you're not willing to, to fight a war against the West, but you still want to to climb the geopolitical ladder and, and be an, um, a recognized global leader? Well, you engage in other forms of of aggression, and that's why we're seeing seeing grey zone aggression. Uh, plus, you get all these uh, other uh, benefits from it, including in the case of North Korea, uh, hard currency; in the case of of China, intellectual property, and so forth. But the reason that uh, grey zone aggression is additionally useful to these countries is that as an authoritarian country, you have a lot more power um, uh, over your your society at large for what you're trying to achieve as the regime of such a country. Here in the West, we would struggle to conduct grey zone aggression in the same way against other countries because our governments are small and they can't just tell private companies, let alone citizens, what to do. Authoritarian countries can do that, which is why we have all sorts of proxies, uh, uh, groups, companies, individuals working with these governments to to advance their grey zone agenda. They are part of, of, of the grey zone aggression themselves as hackers, as, as companies buying up Western companies and so forth. It's, it's really a fantastic recipe for these countries. Jin Dongyuan from the University of Sydney has a slightly different take. The uh, conventional wisdom is, is uh, that these are the tactics uh, typically applied and used uh, by authoritarian um, states. Uh, for instance, uh, if we talk about information warfare, I mean, you can also talk about uh, discourse, uh, public uh, diplomacy. Uh, so in that realm, I think uh, democratic countries also, I mean, certainly have resources and have applied and used the uh, discourse and certainly to be able to influence uh, I mean, the, uh, the perceptions and or to explain the realities or explain the developments in uh, particular issue areas. So it's not solely you know, used by authoritarian uh, states, although they typically uh, resort to these tactics uh, more prominently. I mean, one of the reasons being that uh, on one hand, they want to influence events, influence perceptions, and uh, or subtly sort of uh, change the status quo or change the balance of power, but also conscious that their actions do not trigger very strong responses or on the edge of uh, 
sort of uh, military uh, conflict. So what are some of the key trends that we see in the Indo-Pacific when we think about grey zone and hybrid activities? To start off with, here's Abhijit Singh. Discernible trend line in the Asia-Pacific would be that the use of militias in grey zone operations is likely to grow. Increasingly, uh, countries will use coast guards, if not fishermen militias, to, to counter activity by other countries. Uh, navies would largely be kept out because that would be hugely provocative for the region and that would lead to an inadvertent skirmish. But countries would use these proxies to stake claim over territory in the South China Sea. In the Indian Ocean, I would say the threat is more terror-related. We have seen some militant attacks in the Western Indian Ocean of the waters of Yemen as also in the Persian Gulf just in the past about a year or two where tankers have been targeted, allegedly at the behest of Iran. Um, as long as the Middle East uh, political problems aren't resolved, I reckon this sort of activity is likely to continue in the region. So when it comes to um, the future of uh, grey zone and hybrid warfare, I think definitely the uh, fifth dimension, that means the uh, cyber domain, will uh, will see uh, I- uh, increased use as a battle domain. I think also what we will see more and more is the use of the information sphere for disinformation and misinformation. We have seen that in the United States, what it can do. I think the one that's uh, going to grow in salience is not the gray zone, uh, the under the table activity. That will stay the same. But this notion of hybridity or people are more comfortable with the word proxy. Uh, But again, you know, some form of third party actor supported by a principal who promotes that third party to get engaged, perhaps in a violent confrontation in the middle of the conflict spectrum, who could be like Hezbollah or perhaps like the Chechens, you know, gets access to more violent advanced military capabilities uh, like ISIS and Al-Qaeda were growing towards in which, you know, the violent level will be in the middle of the conflict spectrum, not at the low end with sabotage or car bombs, but mines, holding of urban areas, maybe uh, anti-air or man pads capability, the things we're seeing in Yemen, the things we've seen in Syria, the things we've seen in uh, Afghanistan hasn't gotten quite to that level yet. But again, because we have China and Russia and the United States contesting, you know, their position and the world order and what, what set of rules we're going to live by, you may see them want to avoid direct confrontation and use non-state actors, smaller states, or private military contractors. That was Sasha Buckman and Frank Hoffman on how we might likely see trends in grey zone and hybrid war playing out over coming decades. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this short break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. 
Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. During our discussions with experts on hybrid war and grey zone tactics, and from some of what you've just heard, there was one theme which kept on coming up, that states using these tactics often want to change the regional order. And that makes it worth having a look at the regional order and its architecture, and by that I mean the organisations, institutions and conventions that nations use to regulate their interactions, and the way that architecture is responding to meet the challenges of great power competition. One of the rising trends here is the prominence of minilateralism. But to understand the significance of minilateralism and how it may influence the future of the strategic landscape across the Indo-Pacific, first we must understand how the region became structured the way it is today. Here's Professor Takashi Shiraishi, Chancellor of the Prefectural University of Kumamoto, to give us a broad view of how the region has been shaped since the end of World War II. More symbolic is the fact that the regional framework of Indo-Pacific has been gaining currency over the last 10 years. In the 1990s, it was Asia-Pacific in Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. Towards the end of the 1990s, East Asia, as in the East Asia community, gained currency as a framework. But its membership expanded from ASEAN plus three with Japan, China, and Korea, to ASEAN plus six, that is Australia, New Zealand, and India, in addition to Japan and China and Korea, and eventually to ASEAN plus eight, with the joining of the United States and Russia in 2011. The regional framework is set flexibly to deal with major challenges. There was a worry about Japan becoming dominant in the region when the Cold War was coming to an end, and for that reason, APEC was established in part to make sure that Asia-Pacific would remain open and the United States would remain part of it. Then, when some of the countries in the region were hit by the economic crisis in 1997-98, The United States intervened heavily, and the framework of East Asia gained currency in part to hedge the risk of American intervention in the region. Japan and China competed to work with ASEAN to the benefit of ASEAN countries, but as China rose, the membership of East Asia expanded to maintain balance among member countries. Australia, New Zealand, and India were invited to be part of it, and the United States and Russia also joined the East Asia Summit. Now here's Akiko Fukushima from the Tokyo Foundation of Policy Research to add a security lens to the historical perspective. The agenda for regional cooperation has been predominantly on economy and at much lesser degree on security. For hard security, the United States has built bilateral alliances and partnerships in the region. Such bilateral relations have recently been developing from hub-and-spoke architecture to a network of alliances and partnerships. In the latest geographical framework of Indo-Pacific, there is no established security institution yet. There have been bilateral, trilateral, and quadrilateral dialogues, most notably quadrilateral security dialogue. 
in promoting cooperation, including joint exercises and training and capacity building maritime situation awareness and coast guards. The Quad, as mentioned just now by Professor Fukushima, is arguably the best known example of the growing regional trend of minilateralism. Here's Ashi Turkey from the Observer Research Foundation to explain exactly what minilateralism is. The term minilateral was first used in the year 1992. However, there is no settled definition for this particular term. There are several distinguishing characteristics which can differentiate minilaterals from multilaterals. Uh, For instance, they are more exclusive. They are voluntary, do not lead to legally binding outcomes. They are ad hoc or temporary. They are often regional in character in terms of the issues that they address. They are multi-level and multi-stakeholder. And they also follow a bottom-up approach as opposed to a top-down approach. Multilateralism has been the dominant feature for regional architectures the world over since before the Second World War. How does minilateralism set itself apart? Conceptually, minilateralism overlaps somewhat with multilateralism, but we can distinguish between them in key ways. Minilateralism logically suggests a smaller group of participants as compared to multilateralism. The specific sizes of minilateral groupings would vary depending on the issue at hand. Second, minilateralism is more exclusive compared to broad and inclusive multilateralism, and this is really as a result of its functionality. It is essentially about gathering a critical mass, meaning that it includes only the actors that would have the biggest impact on resolving or managing the particular issue. And third, Minilateralism is more flexible and informal. So in many instances, minilateralism is meant to be a more nimble and targeted approach to address specific challenges in ways that existing mechanisms are unable to. So this also means that minilateral platforms could, theoretically speaking, easily form and disband depending on how the outcomes of such cooperation play out. That was Sarah Teo from RSIS at Nanyang Technological University setting minilateralism apart from multilateralism. Akiko Fukushima sums up minilateralism in quite a neat way, using the quad as an example. I define minilateralism as a format for players who share similar concern and interest to form a small core group to address challenges better by aligning or coordinating their policies and to promote focused functional cooperation, quadrilateral security dialogue, abbreviated as QUAD, that is quadrilateral format among Australia, Japan, US and India, is one example of minilateralism. But just as important as what minilateralism is, we need to be clear on what minilateralism is not. Minilateralism is not an alliance, even though Both Japan and Australia are U.S. allies, and I would say Australia is now Japan's de facto ally. And there is always a possibility for India to go its own way under different circumstances, but India is an important player, and it has its own reasons for being part of it, and we have to be pragmatic about it. The quote 
is a step, an important step to transform the U.S.-led regional hub and spokes security system, which had been the bedrock of regional security, into a network and to seek to cooperate with strategically located ASEAN countries and beyond. That was Takashi Shiraishi, with advice on how minilateral arrangements like the Quad should be viewed. Out of the four Quad countries, India stands out. Both Australia and Japan are US allies, but India does not involve itself in security alliances. Instead, India practices strategic autonomy, not allowing itself to be locked together with another country's interests and actions. With that as the context, it's worth asking whether minilateralism is a particularly attractive option for India, given minilateralism's limitations and issue-specific approach. It is an attractive choice for India because it does allow New Delhi to choose its uh, certain issues and certain partners. And as you said, that uh, you know this is about uh, specific cooperation on limited goals where interests align. Uh, but what I find interesting is that unlike multilateralism, which really emphasizes inclusivity and perhaps also non-discrimination, minilateralism is often exclusive. It limits the partnerships to uh, the states that are directly involved in an issue or on a particular matter. And so in that sense, minilateralism could sometimes prove to be more effective than multilateralism. uh, And that's when it's responding to those particular issues that are important for all of those countries. But there will be other occasions on which minilaterals will be seen as alliances that are meant to contain the interests and uh, the rise of another country that they all see as being somehow an adversary. And my reference here to China, and that's how the Chinese have, in a sense, portrayed the Quad. So it's important for countries that form the minilaterals to very finely balance the minilateral and to project uh, the impression that it really exists for a constructive purpose rather than just to counter the the growing influence or the growing power of another country. That's what my understanding of India's approach to minilateralism is. That was Abhijit Singh with India's perspective on minilateralism. But why is minilateralism emerging now as a choice for confronting security issues in the region? Here's Ashi Turkey on that point. While multilateral frameworks that were established after the Second World War ushered in an era of global cooperation and governance, these institutions seem to have become stagnant, which is why they are also perceived as irrelevant. The last major multilateral trade agreement was signed over 15 years ago. Since then, attempts to conclude big agreements or usher in big reforms for organizations such as the United Nations have not been very successful. So is that to say that multilateralism has been a failure? We asked Sarah Teo. I don't think it is that multilateralism has been unsuccessful, but I would say that multilateralism and minilateralism serve different purposes, especially in the Indo-Pacific. So multilateralism, and here I'm referring to the broad and inclusive multilateralism that has generally been centered on ASEAN and its mechanisms, has generally been useful for dialogue and confidence building that brings together a range of regional countries, regardless of whether they are considered like-minded or not. So platforms such as the ASEAN Regional Forum, the East Asia Summit, and the ASEAN Defence Ministers Meeting Plus have all been valuable 
for their inclusiveness. So dialogue and confidence building remain important as sources of regional stability in, in that sense. But with such a diverse range of countries, all with different interests, it is inevitable that collaboration on concrete initiatives may sometimes be difficult to move forward. And this is where I think minilateralism comes in, to allow more like-minded partners to work together on certain issues more easily and quickly, given their more closely shared strategic outlooks or interests. I see minilateralism in the Indo-Pacific not a challenge to multilateralism, but rather a complement or a building block to regional cooperation. Minilateralism is not a brand new creation of this time. At track 2 or track 1.5 level, we had numerous dialogues. For example, track 2 process of Northeast Asia Cooperation Dialogue to address North Korean nuclear issues have uh, started since the 1990s. We also have had a six-party talks on North Korea at track one level. There is also trilateral formats such as Japan-China-Korea Summit, which is a spin-off from ASEAN Plus 3 and now as an independent process. We also have US-Australia-Japan trilateral to plus two as well. I believe all these mini-lateralism have not proven to be a challenge to multilateral cooperation, rather a complement. And that was Akiko Fukushima pointing out that mini-lateralism has been a feature, albeit not the most dominant, in the Indo-Pacific for decades. But until around about 10 or so years ago, the regional order wasn't in question. Now that great power competition has emerged between China and the United States, does minilateralism pose any new challenges? A challenge, particularly in terms of the more recent minilateral mechanisms, is the potential for these to deepen divisions in a region, especially if they are premised on a China versus United States dynamic. The second risk applies to the impact that minilateralism may have on the ASEAN-centric multilateral architecture. While minilateralism and multilateralism serve different purposes, and hold different value for regional security, there is also the possibility that some countries, given limited resources, may end up deciding to invest more in minilateral mechanisms at the expense of their commitment towards broader multilateral arrangements in the future. Minilaterals help governments to forge fluid partnerships to address a common threat or a specific issue. By their nature, they are exclusive in membership. This can certainly lead to the setting up of different camps and mutually exclusive groupings for the same regional construct. For instance, in the Indo-Pacific, you have minilaterals with the participation of like-minded countries like India, Australia, US and other Western states. But on the other hand, you also have a network of institutions that are led by China such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, You also have the Belt and Road Initiative. So the creation of minilaterals can aggravate these divisions and lead to the creation of mutually exclusive power blocks, which can in turn escalate great power competition and reduce possibilities of great power cooperation. 
That was Sarah Teo and Ashi Turkey detailing some of the potential risks with minilateralism emerging as a key trend within the Indo-Pacific. So how do we expect the region to evolve in coming years, and how will different countries approach regional cooperation? Let's start with the Japanese perspective from Takashi Shiraishi. I would say that the national security strategy adopted in 2013 remain, which called for deepening and expanding the Japan-US alliance in such areas as missile defense, maritime security, space and cyber security, and disaster relief, and underlined the importance of networking with partner states. This is likely to be devised in the near future, and in light of the establishment of the economic policy group in the National Security Secretariat, I expect the revised national security strategy to dwell more on economic security, even though the foremost strategic importance placed on the free and open Indo-Pacific will remain. Japan supports arms and unity and centrality, but all of us are aware that ASEAN is drifting and that divergent strategic interests are creating divisions between the maritime states plus Vietnam on the one hand and the four mainland states on the other. This division pulls ASEAN, maritime and mainland states in different directions. This prospect makes it all the more important for countries like Japan and Australia to engage individual ASEAN states in a tailor-made fashion, taking into full consideration each other's individual positions and interests. Well, I think uh, there are probably several trends uh, in the region. If we talk about economics, clearly there's uh, with the regional uh, comprehensive economic cooperation, the RCEP partnership that was concluded uh, last year, you could see part of the region, certainly uh, key players, including Australia and Japan, which are part of the uh, Quad, they are also members of uh, RCEP. So you could see an emerging economic uh, block. Within the block, this part of the world would uh, emerge as uh, economically growing sort of economic interdependence. And where China is centrally placed in certainly the RCEP, but as uh, the other countries in, in the region all have significant trading uh, relationships with China. So, so you, you would see this economic trend, you know, continue evolving where China certainly is, is uh, leading the pack. That was Jin Dong Yuan highlighting the centrality of China's growing role in regional economics. Here's Sarah Teo and Akiko Fukushima on how future trends might play out regarding the regional architecture. So I foresee two main trends in the regional architecture going forward. The first trend is more intense Sino-US rivalry across more areas of regional affairs, which will then increase the pressure on regional countries to choose a side. The second trend is the proliferation of minilateral mechanisms, not just among countries geographically located in this region, but also bringing in extra-regional actors, for instance, the countries in Europe. And together, both trends suggest that the future Indo-Pacific region will become more diverse and more complex. And interestingly, in that sense, 
with a greater need for the continuation of inclusive dialogue and cooperation arrangements. Rather than creating a new multilateral institution for Indo-Pacific immediately, I predict the functional cooperation would uh, progress in bilateral and minilateral mode, possibly developing into multilateral one in the future. The process should also be inclusive rather than exclusive. Japanese FOIP is also an exclusive concept. Also, cooperation will be on geopolitical and geoeconomic combined. In the past, we kind of uh, divided the two and we often talked the two as a choice. But now we have to approach it as a combined global economic and global political agenda. So how might minilateralism work as a mechanism for dealing with the regional security issues likely to arise in this period of great power competition? Well, I think it depends on the specific issue. If we are looking at building confidence and making sure that the regional architecture includes all the key players, then multilateralism would be valuable. On the other hand, if we are talking about very targeted issues like piracy in the Malacca Straits or Sulu Seas or even disaster relief, then minilateralism may logically make more sense. In the context of Sino-US rivalry, minilateralism among middle powers could also be useful for contributing towards a regional order based on norms and rules, rather than raw power itself. The Indo-Pacific region is of major importance to Japan, Australia and India to counter the rise of China. Here, a security-focused minilateral arrangement could be very successful. Partners with shared concerns and similar interests and shared values could focus on cooperation and coordination within the region and also work with forums such as ASEAN, as well as important Western countries who are interested in keeping track of the evolving strategic and security dimensions of this region. So we've considered two regional trends that are rising in prominence throughout the Indo-Pacific. One, which is a way of challenging regional security, and one which may be a useful mechanism for nations to collectively confront shared challenges. How might these two trends interact over coming decades? More specifically, can multilateralism be a useful approach for regional countries to deter and confront grey zone and hybrid threats? Grey zone activities fall somewhere between peace and war and are usually activities that are not associated with requiring a military response. So to address the challenges that come with these, minilaterals have to be prepared for low-intensity armed and unarmed hybrid tactics. Minilateral frameworks can be certainly useful in mobilizing allies and members to respond quickly, and they can also provide an avenue for members to train together through military cooperation or naval exercises to deter grey zone actions and create a format to address, say, cyber warfare, subversion, foreign interference, or the utilization of unmarked military forces. 
I mean, the quad is more about, of course, these four countries all share democratic uh, values and they support uh, rule-based regional or international order. So they also talk about uh, where they can share resources in terms of security and perhaps also including tactics, strategies, and responses to green zone activities and, and tactics. And increasingly, they are also talk about geoeconomic matters, for instance, the supply chain uh, vulnerability and uh, how they can develop their own capacities and so that they can better handle uh, such events as the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. The one advantage the West has is that we as, as liberal democracies have friends. Authoritarian countries don't have friends. They mostly have vassals that, that obey them if they are lucky. But we in the West have friends. And what we can do is not just stick together and, and collectively respond if one of our countries is attacked, but we can also respond on another country's behalf. So the next time, for example, that uh, Chinese wine exporters see their biggest export market cut off in, in retaliation against something that uh, the Australian government has done that has nothing to do with with uh, the Australian winemakers, another country could respond on the Australian winemakers' behalf so that it's never clear to the attacker what sort of response could take place. And of course, that makes it uh, much more uncertain and much less palatable to engage in, in grazing and aggression in the first place. If we want to counter these threats, whether it is now gray zone or hybrid threats, we have to raise awareness and we have to work on resilience. And that can only be among partners. And that is why it's important that the United States have returned, as you can say, the multiplier of alliances. But I think what we need is this awareness angle. And the awareness angle is that we develop narratives and that these narratives are then being shared among the decision makers. Because we have to speak as one voice. And we see there's a disconnect very often between our national security and then, for example, our political position, which is very much dependent on trade and business and you name it. What we need to do is, and it is happening already, like the Interparliamentary Alliance, that politicians, for example, start basically working together. We have to work alongside our allies and partners, as we already do. And we have to also start basically breaking up the existing traditional security mechanisms and arrangements which we have and include new partners. We're talking here Japan, for example. And we have to find a way to protect, I would say, our economic sovereignty. It's very important to develop the habits of cooperation. Sometimes what, what happens is that nations do operate together, but they don't develop the required levels of interoperability to be able to uh, coordinate activity, to counter gray zone activity by, by other states. So I think it's very important for countries to uh, actively exercise in the region and be able to coordinate their procedures, their protocols, their drills in ways that they can operate together. That would be a good way of counter-posturing to, to say, say, the Chinese militias. Now, uh, now, one of the reasons why I would say that doesn't quite happen in the Indian Ocean is because the Chinese militias have not been, militias as in the, the, the Chinese Coast Guard, the Chinese fishing vessels, have not been as active as China's non-military activity. 
But I would say that as China begins to project power into the Indian Ocean region, both using its uh, you know military and 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 non-military means. India and other regional countries will recognize the importance of also coordinating procedures uh, in a way that they can push back against grey zone activity in the region. That was Ashi Turkey, Jingdong Yuan, Elizabeth Braw, Sasha Bachman, and Arjabit Singh, giving us their thoughts on how minilateralism and a combined approach among nations may prove useful in dealing with grey zone and hybrid tactics over coming years. It's clear from these discussions with a range of experts that competition across the Indo-Pacific is likely to grow more intense over coming years and that states looking to alter the status quo from a position of relative weakness will continue to creatively exploit opportunities such as rigid views of war and peace, open societies with freer markets and an open media. But it's also clear that creativity in modes of cooperation between like-minded states with the flexibility and agility to form issue-specific and non-binding partnerships to address shared challenges provides a pathway for defending Indo-Pacific security and a defence of the regional order. There's no crystal ball methodology that helps us to predict the influence of current trends on future scenarios, but discussions like these assist policymakers in understanding plausible future scenarios, allowing them to make better informed decisions today. The experts we spoke to for this special edition of the National Security Podcast were very generous with their time and thoughts, and the National Security College would like to thank Professor Sasha Buckman, Professor-in-Law at Canberra Law School, the University of Canberra, and Research Fellow, the Security Institute for Governance and Leadership in Africa at Stellenbosch University. Miss Elizabeth Braw, Resident Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Professor Akiko Fukushima, Senior Fellow at the Tokyo Foundation for Policy Research. Dr. Frank Hoffman, Distinguished Research Fellow at the National Defense University in the United States of America. Professor Takashi Shiraishi, Chancellor at Prefectural University of Kumamoto and Professor Emeritus at the National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies, Japan. Mr. Abhijit Singh, Senior Fellow and Head of the Maritime Policy Initiative at the Observer Research Foundation. Dr. Sarah Teo, Research Fellow and Coordinator of the Regional Security Architecture Program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, Nanyang Technological University. Ms. Ashi Turkey, Junior Fellow at the Observer Research Foundation, and Professor Jingdong Yuan, Associate Professor at the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. Well, that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the first of this special three-part series. And don't forget, all the analysis from the Indo-Pacific Futures Project will be made available on the College's Futures Hub website. There's a link in the show notes. Until next time... Thanks for tuning in.